sit in the tension of that song for a minute because sometimes we're, we're tempted to move on from worship to the sermon as if they're two different things, but we've been hearing the word of God preached all morning already this morning. And it's, it's vitally important for us to understand fully that little phrase you've been saying over and over and over again, Lord, I need you. Because I, I, I'm tempted at times to look at our, out at our world and say this, God, our, our world needs Jesus. And I can act at times that when, I, and I can live my life in such a way that functionally, I never acknowledge my need of a savior every single day. And the truth is, the word of God says that we are all sinners. We are all unrighteous. And man, do we need Jesus every single day. It's not just the world out there that needs him. It's not just for salvation that we need him. We need him for every breath that we take. We need him. So pray with me, will you? Father, we need you. And God, I would ask that you'd forgive me for the times where I pretended that I can live my life without your daily grace, without your sustaining grace. We need you today. God, we need you yesterday. We need you for every moment. We need you for every breath. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your spirit that guides us, that, that helps us, that guides us in worship. And I thank you for the words of that song And God, what a privilege it is to sing it together. We need you, Lord. We thank you that you're near. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You guys can take a seat, thank you. My name is Eric, I'm one of the pastors here at FBC and it's a a great privilege to be with you this morning. And uh, I just have to say this, I'm so thankful for you. on Sunday mornings where I have the opportunity to preach, I am a nervous wreck when I sit right here. But something happens when I get to hear you sing. I just sit there and listen. And I get to hear you sing and hear the passion in your voices and your desire to worship the Lord. It, it, it's, it's, it's therapeutic for me. It helps me. So thank you. But I'm also grateful that we sing songs that contain the word of God. And we, we sing things that mean something. They preach something. And it's an awesome to, to, to lead in a place where, where Jesus is lifted high. I mean, listen to the lyrics that you just sang in the bridge of that song. It says, teach my song to rise to you when temptation comes my way and when I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and my stay. And today in our series in James chapter one, if you guys have your Bibles, you can turn there. We're actually looking at temptation. It's almost as if Matt knew that and knew what we were gonna be talking about, right? And when he picked that song, he picked, a, he picked an excellent song because what we're gonna be looking at today is really how do, we, how do we teach our song to rise to Jesus when we are in the midst of temptation? What does that, what does that mean and what does that look like? Because we are going to face temptation. And last week, Phil did an awesome job launching us into this first chapter of James and talking about the trials that we'll face. And today's passage, starting in verse 12, is in that same vein of thinking, okay? So look at verse 12 in chapter one. It says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, 
which God has promised for those who love him. And and James here is linking us back to to verse two, which says, my brothers, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds, right? That's what Phil talked about last week. Well, he's launching us into another section about a different kind of trial, one of those various kinds of trials. And normally when we think of trials, we think of circumstances happening around us, right? Things that are coming in and out of our lives that that causes pain or suffering. But sometimes what James is pointing out is the trial is actually going on inside of us. It's not external. It's caused by our own desires. And I have to admit that Phil kind of blew up my sermon last week when he was speaking. I was sitting right over there, had it all planned out, and then he just wrecked it. Thank you. And he did, he did it in an amazing way. And he, I, I think it's, it's better this way because it more accurately reflects the text. Here's what I mean. Last week, Phil told us that the audience reading this letter is scattered all over the place, right? The Jewish leaders in Jerusalem are, are persecuting them because they are claiming the name of Jesus now. And so they're forced to leave their home and they're scattered all over the place. So they're facing trials right now. And the reason they have trials is because they're calling themselves Christians. And that's why James writes right off the bat about trials and growing through them. But then he writes about temptation right after it to the same people in the same circumstance. So let me ask you this. If you're running for your life because you claim the name of Jesus, what's really the temptation? Because normally when I think about temptation and we kind of see James as the Proverbs of the New Testament and when we read Proverbs, we kind of break them into sections. We're like, okay, this is about this and, and then this is about this and, and they don't really flow together. But James is talking about here is a, he's talking about the temptation of leaving the faith. He's talking about the temptation of just backing out and saying, I, I've had enough in abandoning their walk with the Lord. Because these people are running for their lives. They're facing trials, they're facing persecution. And the temptation is to say, I, I just can't, I can't deal with it anymore. And now the, the principles are the same when we deal with temptation, they're the same principles, but it takes on a whole new light when we think about it in this way. And I'm sure there's some people in this room or, or online joining us this morning where you wonder sometimes if it's really worth it. Is it really worth it to walk with Jesus? I've had that question pop in my head a time or two. We will look at the world around us and we we see riots, we see racism, we see cops being killed, we see all sorts of garbage just happening everywhere and sometimes I wonder if it's worth it. And this people that James is writing to are wondering that same question. And so James writes to them about temptation. This is the context into which James is writing. And so let's jump right in and read this this passage together. Starting in verse 12, I'll start again. It says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive a crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, 
For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to death, or excuse me, to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And in these verses, there's actually a pattern that emerges contrasting the goodness of God with our sinfulness as humanity, our sinfulness and fallibility of man. And I, I don't have time to get into the details of this, but there's those of you who kind of like nerdy Bible things, there's a structure going on here. Um, it's a technique called a chiastic structure. You can Google it or ask me later. But the, the point is that it points us to a central theme in this passage, in verse 14 and 15. And this is the common nature of temptation. It says, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is the, the danger of unchecked desire in our own hearts. This is a common source of our temptation, the common source. We would like to think, right, that, that temptation comes from somewhere else because then we're not responsible for it. Like if temptation is just the donuts sitting on the counter at home and not in my desire to consume the entire dozen, then I don't, I don't get blamed for when I eat a dozen donuts. But the truth is that the temptation, the source of temptation is actually inside of me. It says when my unchecked desires go out of control, that's where temptation. But we have to make an important distinction right here. The truth is that the capacity for great evil lurks in every single one of us. We like to pretend that we aren't capable of some of the atrocities we see in the news or read about online, but we're actually all capable of them because the temptation, the evil, actually is in our hearts. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Some translations say desperately wicked. That, my, my heart is desperately wicked. And so we're quick to forget that when Jeremiah is writing that verse, he's writing about the people of God, right? And they're, they've lost their way and judgment is coming for them and they're gonna be exiled, but he's writing to the people of God. He's saying, your hearts are desperately wicked. They're desperately sick and it's only through the Holy Spirit that they can be tamed and your, your desires can be brought under control. Beyond our common source of temptation, we also see the common struggle. 1 Corinthians 10 says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. That means we all struggle with temptation. Everyone will face it. And it's here we need to make another important distinction. Temptation in and of itself is not sin. When you're tempted... The sin happens when your desires go haywire and your desires go out of control and you 
submit to that temptation, but the temptation itself is not sin, or else Jesus, who was also tempted, would have sinned. So temptation itself is not sin, but it's when we give in to our unchecked desires that sin takes place. This is why we aren't talking about avoiding temptation necessarily today, because you can't. It's impossible. Rather, we need to know how to have victory when we face temptation, because it is going to come. Remember, temptation is a form of trial, and James, in the beginning of of his chapter, he says that, Trials will come your way. Temptation, in the same way, just like a trial that it is, will come your direction. You will face it. And so how do we teach ourselves or how do we learn to raise our voices to God in those moments and sing sing our, our praises to him and walk in victory? There's a guy that some of you are probably familiar called Martin Luther. Not Martin Luther King, but the Protestant reformer. Uh, he wrestled with this deeply back in the 1500s. Uh, he, he couldn't make sense of giving his heart to Jesus and then fighting with these temptations over and over and over again. And so he actually entered the monastery in hopes that it would relieve the temptation around him because there's no temptation in a monastery, right? There's, no, there's not a dozen donuts sitting on every counter in a monastery, Okay, they, they remove every external source of temptation that they can. But what Martin Luther figured out was just what James says, that temptation was in here. It followed him into the monastery. We can't escape it. In fact, later in life, Martin Luther wrote this. Temptations, of course, cannot be avoided. But because we cannot prevent the birds from flying over our heads, there is no need that we should let them nest in our hair. Meaning that we can't avoid temptations, but that doesn't mean we have to fall into them. It doesn't mean we need to let them take root in our heart. We can have victory over them. Temptation will come. It's common to all mankind. It will probably come in the next five minutes. The question is not whether temptation will come, the question we must ask is, will we be ready for it? Unfortunately, most humans, including myself, have a common response as well. James 1.13 says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted of evil, and he himself tempts no one. James identifies our common response to temptation, especially when we give in to temptation, it's to blame somebody else. And at times we, we blame God. I do this all the time. My, uh, our kids lovingly call Jessica's mom Gigi. And Gigi, every time she comes to our house, it's like reverse Halloween. And by that, I mean, instead of our kids going door to door, like a dump truck disguised as a Honda CRV unloads this pile of sweets into our pantry every single time that Gigi comes to our house. It really is actually a sight to behold. I don't know where one person, I don't know of one store that a person can go to and pick up that much candy. There's, there's that much of it. And so, but here's the, the issue. My kids don't eat that much candy. Yet the pile decreases in size every single day somehow. 
And it, it has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that Jessica and I dip into that candy stash every single night after our kids go to bed. It just doesn't. And the running joke in our house is that Gigi is to blame for my growing waistline, right? Why do you bring so much candy into our house? I, I just want to publicly declare before all of you and confess this, it's not your fault, Gigi. It really isn't. It's my fault, right? Most of you know, understand that if you blame somebody else for eating 10 pounds of candy every single night, you're ridiculous. You're the one shoveling it into your mouth, Right? It's my fault, but we love to blame other people. It's exactly what we do in temptation, and it's what we've done from the very beginning of time. Look with me quickly at Genesis 3, and this is just moments after the, that Adam and Eve fall into temptation. It says in verse 8 that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves. From the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And watch this. The man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And then the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. How ridiculous is this exchange right here? As if, they, as if they're speaking as if God doesn't know what actually happened, right? First, Adam simultaneously blames Eve, his wife, for handing him the fruit. And then he blames God for making her the woman that handed him the fruit. And then God turns to Eve and Eve blames the snake. I know, I know it's Satan and I know he's powerful, but why would you listen to a talking snake? And she blames him. And we look at this story and we're like, how, how stupid are you? Why are you blaming a snake? Why are you blaming each other? But that's the exact same thing that we do all the time. I have this same conversation with God, if I'm honest. If, if you didn't allow me to go through this, then I wouldn't have fallen into sin. If you would just change my circumstances, then everything would be fine. If you wouldn't have me walking through this trial then I, I wouldn't sin. I wouldn't fall into these things. It's your fault. You put me here. And, and maybe none of us would say that out loud, but certainly in, in, our, in our minds and in our hearts, we have that conversation, right? If only God changed my circumstances, then everything would be better. If I had more money, everything would be better. I wouldn't, I wouldn't sin in that way. And that common response gets us nowhere when we blame other people. The source, the struggle, and our response to temptation are pretty common. But the path to victory is anything but common. And that's what we see next in James, the uncommon path to victory in temptation. Most of us would like a 12-step process, right? Like you would, if, if your notes were 12 steps to get out of every single form of temptation. And actually, there's probably books on every Christian bookstore about 12 steps to get out of temptation. But James doesn't do that. Instead, James invites us to adjust our gaze, 
our perspective in temptation. And the reason he does this is because a 12-step process requires zero faith. And when we look for solutions to a spiritual problem apart from faith, we're destined to fail. If we have no faith, spiritual problems are not gonna go away. I said earlier that James weaves in this passage a contrast between the goodness of God and the fallibility of man. And here lies our key to victory. If we want victory in the face of temptation, we must know God and we must know ourselves. First, we must know God, okay? And this isn't just an academic surface knowledge of God. I'm not, I'm not saying you know about God. You know God. When the Bible uses the word know, it's an extremely intimate word. Our knowledge of God has to be deeper than surface level. Deep-rooted spiritual problems require more than surface-level faith. What's going on in our, our world today, if you just have surface-level shallow faith, it's not, it's not gonna cut it because the problems are so much deeper. We need to know God intimately. And this is the idea of a telescope, okay? So I have a telescope. Now, I... Um, I don't know how to use this. But I, I get the basic idea of a telescope, right? You guys understand. We use them to look up at the, the night sky and see stars and see different things in the cosmos that, that we can't see with the naked eye. And so if I look in here, yeah, you guys, you guys up in the balcony look pretty good. Except that guy picking his nose. Just kidding. And then, um, you know, What's really cool about a telescope is it's not just like one level, right? You can adjust the depth of field, right? And look deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper in, into our world, our, our universe, and see things that you've never seen before. Now, I understand this, this telescope uh, is not very powerful, okay? So I, I looked at the, the moon the other night, and I could see some things I didn't see before, okay? It was pretty cool. But... Going beyond that we requires more, right? Right? So they have some telescopes. One of them um, is called the Hubble Telescope, okay? And I wanna show you just one image from one of these telescopes, the Hubble Telescope, okay? So can we show that picture? Now, I'll be honest, the picture's not great. Uh, that star that they eventually point out in the picture in the bottom, bottom right, in 2016 is called Icarus, okay? This is the furthest known object that a man has ever seen with a telescope. Anyone want to take a crack at how far away they think that is? It's not in Goshen, I can tell you that much. Icarus, the star, is 9 billion light years away. Nine billion, okay. Um, now a light year, I had to re research this again because I'm not very smart. A light year is how far light travels in a year, which is about 5.8 trillion miles. So to get the approximate distance of Icarus away from Earth, you have to multiply nine billion times 5.8 trillion. My iPhone calculator could not compute. It just shut off. That's, Super far away. 
And that's how far we've looked into the cosmos as human beings, how, how deep we've looked. And that's just one point. You can rotate, rotate a, a telescope and look, imagine looking nine billion light years away and from every single angle of the telescope, you would find some things that are just simply amazing. But think with me for just one minute and imagine just for one minute what our lives would look like if we looked that deeply into the Bible to know the creator of the stars instead of the stars themselves. That's what it means to know God. Our view of God would explode and our view of our problems would shrink. When your problems are big, you've made God too small. But when you allow God to be big, your problems are very small by comparison. When we seek to know God deeply, intimately, personally, our desires that go out of control in our own lives fade away because they pale in comparison. And this is why it's so important in temptation. If you have a big telescopic view of God, temptation to, to run after something else to some other source of pleasure doesn't even pale in comparison to your God because you realize he's the one that created the stars. We have to know God. We have to know God. And James gives us two things specifically we have to know deeply about God. And in verse 12, he talks about his goodness to us. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. God wants to bless us. God has always and will always be good to his people. Even in your trials, even in your temptation, James says that God has a plan to bless you for your perseverance. So trust his goodness. One of the things we have to do with God and know about God is we have to trust his goodness. Think about that in light of temptation. If we're, we're tempted to, to give up the faith as the people here are in James, or if we're tempted by lust or we're tempted by overindulgence or whatever, if we remind ourselves to trust the goodness of God and know that he has better things in store for us, temptation fades away. Next, James talks about his plan, not just his goodness, but his plan. He says in verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And this is the doctrine of God's infallibility, okay? Infallibility means there's no possible way of error in God. In other words, he doesn't make mistakes. It isn't by mistake that God has you where you're at. It isn't by mistakes that you're facing the trials that you're facing right now. It isn't by mistake that, that God is allowing these circumstances into your life. God doesn't make mistakes. And he is, has good in mind for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. He doesn't make mistakes. So trust his goodness and trust his plan. In the midst of temptation, we have to. We have to trust his goodness. and We have to trust his plan. We have to know God intimately. We look through a telescope it makes the vastness of the universe come into view. And in the same way, it makes us feel really small. Like when you look at a star nine billion light years away, it doesn't make you feel very big. 
It helps you view yourself in light of everything going on around you. The same is true when we come to know God and his greatness. It helps us view ourselves in the proper light as well. And that's the next one is we must know ourselves. I'm not talking about self-esteem. I'm not talking about self-love or anything like that. I'm talking about knowing your enemy. Know the wickedness that is inside of you. In verse 14, James reminds us that we are not like God. He is infallible. He doesn't make mistakes. We do all the time. And in verse 16, he reminds us that, that we can be deceived. We can deceive ourselves. We have to know ourselves and our weaknesses. And this is the idea of a mirror, okay? Um, I think you guys get the basic idea of a mirror. Humans are in a, real, in a habit of waking up, hopefully, in the morning and l- at least looking into a mirror, correct? So that you can see the things that are out of place on your face and see, like, uh, the sleep lines and the drool marks that you have all over the place before you come to church and make sure that, you know, you don't have snot coming out of your nose and things like that. And so it's a really good habit that every morning we look into the mirror, right? Because or else we'd be walking around and we may have giant things of asparagus from last night's dinner just crammed in our teeth and we would never know it. But do we take the time to evaluate ourselves spiritually and look into the word. In fact, James later on in chapter one says that the the law of liberty or the word of God is a mirror into our hearts. And if we don't look into it, we don't see ourselves correctly. We have to know our weaknesses. We need to look into the word and see ourselves properly in the spiritual sense. We need the word to show us that we need Jesus and that we don't look like him. Because when we understand what, what our weaknesses are and that we are actually capable of being deceived, we look out for temptation in different ways. If I know that I, I'm, I'm tempted in a certain area, I can look out for those ways and be ready for them when they come, right? But if I don't look into the word of God and know what God says about me and says about himself, then I'm just walking around blindly hoping I don't trip on something. It's like, me waking up in the morning and not looking in the mirror. We need both. We need the telescope and we need the mirror. In doing so, we can see where we're vulnerable. We can see where we're tempted to flee. We can see where we're likely to fail. And with God's help, we can bolster our defenses in those areas. If the source of temptation is in us, the common source of temptation is in us, then it pays to know what desires we tend to let go unchecked. We need a mirror. We need to dive deep into the word. If you're anything like me, you need a lot of help doing this because sometimes even I miss things in a mirror, right? So my wife has a final say on me walking out of the house making sure I'm presentable, right? We need other people in our lives to show us our blind spots. That's why, that's why Christian community isn't optional, right? We kind of think we can do things on our own, but the truth is we all have blinders on like this sometimes and we miss things in the peripheral, okay? We miss it if we don't have people helping us. And that's why I'm so happy that FBC, at FBC, we're a church of life groups. We're not, we're not just a, a group of 
it's awesome to come together like this and to worship together and hear the word of God preached, but we need community. So we're a church of small groups. We need the word and we need others to help view ourselves properly. And with those things, with both the telescope and the mirror, victory and temptation is absolutely possible. It is possible to walk in victory over temptation. But we have to keep both these things in mind. We have, to have, we have to have both of them because without a proper view of God and his greatness, we don't see ourselves in the proper light. And if we think too highly of ourselves, if you know, we just stare into the mirror and, and think, man, I look, I look pretty good today. I'm doing pretty well. And we don't look at how gloriously holy God is, we miss it. We have to have both. We have to have a worldview that allows us to see God as he is and see ourselves as we are. I read the beginning of 1 Corinthians 10, 13 earlier, and now I want to finish it for you. It says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. If, and what James tells us is that the way to endure it and to gain victory in temptation is to know God deeply and to know yourself properly. While I was studying this past week on the subject of temptation, a question arose, and I'm sure it might have come up in your minds as well. What if I've already failed? It may actually be the reason you tuned me out this morning because you've you've fallen into temptation so many times that it's become a way of life. What if I've been tempted, just like the early believers, to abandon the faith and I've walked away? What if I don't trust God? I want to finish our time today by sharing with you an incredibly encouraging story from Scripture and then a call to action. The story is in Luke 22, and during the Last Supper, Jesus shared with his disciples before he was to be crucified. And I want you to hear the discourse between Jesus and Peter. He says this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, Strengthen your brothers. And, and so what we see in this moment is that even before Peter denied his Lord and Savior three times, Jesus tells him that this failure and temptation doesn't have to be the end of the story. And by God's grace, it's not the end of Peter's story. Peter falls into the exact temptation that James is warning about later in the New Testament. When things got hard He was tempted to abandon his Lord to save his own skin, and he he failed miserably. And not just once, three times. The same thing, he denied knowing Jesus. But failure doesn't define the the rest of Peter's story. Grace does. And in John 21, after Jesus' resurrection in 15 through 19, we see this restoration of, of Peter on the beach. We see, we see him in a boat fishing and he sees Jesus on the shore and he jumps out of the boat to run to Jesus. And this is the idea of the telescope is when, when you're tempted and even when you've fallen into temptation, you need to run to Jesus, run to him. 
And, and he has this beautiful moment, and, and I'm sure very difficult moment on the beach with Jesus, where Jesus keeps asking me, Peter, do you, do you love me more than these? And Peter keeps answering him, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, I, I love you. And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. And this is the process of restoration in Peter's life. And at the end of the conversation, John records for us this very simple yet incredibly profound invitation for Peter. In verse 19, it says, after saying this, he said to him, follow me. After everything, after the warning, after the temptation, after the failure, after the death of Jesus, after the resurrection and the restoration of Peter, Jesus' invitation is the same as the day he called him from his nets in the beginning. He says, follow me. And that's the same for us today. If, if you've fallen into temptation, even if it's over and over and over and over again, Jesus is asking you to follow him. Follow him. God gives us a way to be victorious in temptation, but he also gives us a way to respond when we aren't victorious. Some of you are there right now. You're in a place where your unchecked desires have, have led to sin. And as you've listened today, you feel, felt that pinch in your heart. You felt that tension in your chest and then I'll, I'll let you know, I think that's the Holy Spirit when that happens. Maybe you're getting really uncomfortable. Your, your palms are sweating. You're getting, you're getting warm and, and you feel a tension in your chest and you have to respond to the temptations that you've fallen into. You have to do something about it. And I wanna give you an invitation to do so. So we're gonna finish the same way we started. We're gonna worship the Lord together. And as the band begins to sing and as the band begins to play, I wanna give you an opportunity to respond in repentance for the falling into the temptation that we've had. We all face temptation. We all fall into it or walk directly into it at times. And sometimes we have to walk back. We have to come back. And if you've been struggling with temptation and you've been working through some specific issues on your own and it's just not getting there and you need help, we have that here for you today. And we have a prayer team down here today that'll be down here that's been specifically prepared for this to help you walk your way back and start following Jesus again. We can have victory over temptation, but there's also forgiveness for falling into temptation. And you can find that today, maybe for the very first time, you can find that. So as the band plays and as you sing, I encourage you, examine your own heart and look, look at yourself deeply as the word of God describes you and see if there's any unclean way in, in you. And if, if you need help, come grab my hand, come grab one of my pr our prayer team's hand and walk in newness of life today and follow Jesus again. Teaching my soul to rise to you when temptation comes my way, when I cannot stand before all Jesus, you're my hope and stay. So teach my soul to rise to you.
says that the the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself, has been disarmed. He has nothing on you. And so today, this week, walk in victory over temptation by knowing God deeper. Amen. Thank you guys. You are dismissed.